Amen. Good morning. It's so good to see you all this morning. Thank you for being here. We're so very thankful to have our visitors with us and those of you who are joining us online. We have uh, this week and next week in this series, and then we'll start our next series. And today we're going to talk about evil and suffering. And I think perhaps the greatest, most difficult question and, and uh, issue that skeptics and that unbelievers have with Christianity is the problem of evil and the question about pain and suffering. And the question goes something like this, how could a good God or how could a loving God allow so much pain and suffering in this world? I think that's a very good question and one that we've all wondered before and one that Christians need to be clear about. We need to think through this and think through it biblically. Today is 9-11 and most of us here in this room and online, remember that day. We were, we were here that day. We, we saw that happen. We remember what that was like when evil struck at the heart of our country. And thousands died. There was nothing but evil, pure evil and suffering and pain. And we all wondered, where is God? How could this happen? This is evil. And people experienced great pain and suffering. Maybe you've experienced that bad news from the doctor, from your employer, from a relationship. Maybe you've experienced a tragedy, you've experienced a loss, whatever that might be, and that drew you closer to God. Maybe you had been drifting from God, and, and that, that pain and that suffering actually caused you to draw closer to God, to return to Him, to restore your relationship in Him. But for some people, they experience tragedy, they experience pain and suffering, and it causes them to wonder, well, where is God? And they doubt God and, and maybe even reject God and move away from Him, never to return. So people respond to pain and suffering in this life in different ways. And so as Christians, how should we understand evil and pain and suffering that we live with in this world. So the problem of evil is put this way. Here's how uh, on this next slide we can see how the problem of evil is, is posed. An all-knowing God would know that evil exists. An all-loving God would want to prevent evil. An all-powerful God could prevent evil. Evil exists so therefore, God cannot be all of the above. He's, he's lacking in one of these. He's either not all loving, he's not all knowing, or he's not all powerful. And therefore, can God be God? Can there even be a God? Because if there is, surely we conclude he would not allow pain and suffering. I think that's a very good question, a very human feeling and question to have. And so that's what we want to explore. But there's, there's another question to ask along these lines. If there is no God, then there can be no higher power than we are to say that something is right or wrong. There can be no standard of morality because after all, if we were just uh, uh, created from a lower life form that became a higher life form and then a higher life form and eventually us 
then all of there is is natural selection. There's no higher power. There's no higher being to, to determine right and wrong, good and bad, evil, that, to tell us right and wrong. And so, so why are you upset about pain and suffering? Who, who, how, how can you even say that something is wrong? How can you say that something is, is, it shouldn't happen, that suffering shouldn't exist? If there is no God, then there's no basis on which to say that's wrong and shouldn't be. So where is the moral outrage? Where's the basis for the moral outrage regarding pain and suffering? If there is no God, then why do you care about pain and suffering? Because the only thing that matters, if there is no God and, and therefore there's no arbiter of uh, uh, good and evil, right and wrong, then the only thing that matters is survival. And, and, and you want to cause pain and suffering so that you can survive and have power. That's the only thing that matters if there is no God. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there a God because someone who says there's not and doesn't believe, on what basis do they have an issue with pain and suffering and the evil and the world? How can they call that evil? All that is is survival. Survival of the fittest, right? Natural selection. And yet Christians say, but there is a God. We believe there's a God. So then how do we reconcile, how do we make sense of pain and suffering in the world? There's a guy named Admiral Jim Stockdale. You may have heard of him. He was held as a POW for eight years in Hanoi, North Vietnam, during the Vietnam War. He was highly decorated. Well, he was interviewed years ago by Jim Collins, leadership author uh, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. You may have read that book, wonderful book. He's written several uh, after that. But his question for his book, Good, Good to Great, for Admiral Stockdale was, how did you survive eight years in a POW camp? How did you do that? He was tortured. How did you survive eight years in this POW camp? Here's what Admiral Stockdale said. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never lost faith in the end of the story. Of the story. And so he went on to explain what he meant. He said, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect I wouldn't trade. In other words, I believed that I would get out one day, I would prevail, I would be set free, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. Have gone, go, having gone through that, because it would have been, have been the defining event of my life. And so Admiral Stockdale was asked to tell about those who didn't make it out of that same POW camp. And he said, that's easy. It was the optimists. The optimists didn't make it out. It, that doesn't make sense because we should think, well, you should think positively. But he said the optimists, as he called them, they said, oh, we'll be out by Christmas. Christmas came and Christmas went. And then they would say, oh, we'll be out by Easter. Easter would come, Easter would go. And then it would be Thanksgiving. We'll be out by Thanksgiving. And then it's Christmas again. And Admiral Stockdale said, they died of a broken heart. 
Because they had set these limits on it. They had said, by this time. Well, what happened when you weren't out by that time? Disappointment, heartbroken, because you said it's going to happen by then. Optimism, positive thinking. We think, well, that, that's a good thing. But, but he said, that's not what worked. What worked was I never lost faith in the end of the story. He had faith that he would prevail, and that faith kept him alive. So he didn't survive because he was optimistic that by Christmas he would be home. He survived because of his faith that one day he would prevail. So he explained the lesson that he learned to Collins for uh, the book. He said, you can never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. So, in other words, you've got to have hope that you will prevail in the end. You've got to hold two things that, that seem to disagree. It's called a paradox, and this is where we get the term from, the uh, Stockdale Paradox, if you've heard of that. And in other words, you've got to hold in one hand the hope that you will prevail in the end here. And in this hand, you've got to face the brutal reality, the brutal facts of your current reality. And those have to exist together somehow. In other words, you can't be optimistic and say, oh, I don't even see those facts. Those don't exist. And you may not want to face them at all, but you say, those don't even exist. It's all gumdrops and cotton candy and snowflakes. And he says, that's not what works. You have to have hope that you will prevail in the end and not lose faith in the end of the story. And you've got to face the facts of reality that you stand in. He said, you can never give up hope. The Bible tells Christians that we live in the same kind of paradox, the same kind of situation where we have to hold up hope until the end, hope in Christ, hope in salvation until the end while we live in the current reality of this world and face the facts of pain and suffering, of evil in this world that we live in. The brutal facts of our reality are that sin has wrecked and ruined this world. And that lives are torn apart because of sin and the destruction that it brought. And you all know this from your own lives. We, that's all touched our own lives in many different ways. We know this to be the case. We know, and it doesn't take long being alive and, and as you start to grow up, that life isn't perfect and it doesn't go you know, the way you would like for it to always. If there's disappointment and there's loss and there's hard times and there's challenge, there's difficulty, there's evil, there's wrong, there's injustice in this world. And that's caused by sin. There's two times that we want to look at that Jesus helps us see this, helps us understand that, that he teaches this uh, in, in Scripture. The first is, look at John chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 2. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, see they thought or, or misunderstood or forgot uh, the, how it really works. And they thought that the way life ought to work is that bad things happen to who? Bad people, right? And good things should happen to good people. And that the, when the bad things happen to bad people, they ought to turn to God so that good things can happen to him. That it was a one-to-one -one ratio like that. 
And that's what they were thinking. And, and, and Jesus is like, that's not how this works. He said, neither one of them sinned. It's easy to believe that though, isn't it? And so they didn't understand that that's not the way that works. So look at what he said in verse number 3. It was not this man who sinned or his parents. But look at the rest of verse 3. This man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, how, how is that? Because, see, sin had entered this world and sin brought with it all of the ruin and destruction and disappointment and loss and fault that comes with sin entering the world. And that is why, because of sin in this world, existing in this world, causing uh, fractures and cracks and, and disruption and wreckage, that's why he was born not being able to see. He was born blind because of the ruin that sin ultimately cause, causes in this life. You see, there, is a universe, there are universal consequences to sin that we all have to live with. That's the brutal facts of our current reality that we live in. And he said that's, that's what happened. That's why he was born blind. Not because his parents sinned, because he sinned, even though they were not perfect. It's because of the reality of life in a sinful world, a broken world, a sin-broken world, that he was born blind. But he was born blind so that the works of God may be displayed in him. So what Jesus is showing here is that he, the, the man standing here, Jesus the Christ standing here, had the power over the consequences of sin in our lives. And, and, and John, in several places, talks about that's why he did miracles. And so, in verses 4 through 5, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. Meaning, today, now, because night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is that light. Jesus is that light that shines in a dark world and he has the power over the universal consequences of sin in this life where we experience the pain and suffering that we do. And so on Judgment Day, that day, that's when it's over. It's too late. You can, no more working after that. We're supposed to be about the works of God until then. And, and, and Jesus healed that man to show, to prove to them there at that time that he had that power over sin and its wreckage. Mark chapter 2, turn there and look at this other example. Uh, Jesus was in a home teaching. A lot of people were crammed in the home. They couldn't even get anywhere at the front door, the, the door to the house. It was, it was that packed. There was no more room for anyone to fit. And children, you remember this story, don't you? There was four men who had a friend who was paralyzed. He couldn't walk at all. And they couldn't get their friend in to see Jesus and be healed. And so what did those four guys do, those four friends? They climbed up on that house, and what did they do? They tore open a hole in that roof, didn't they? And they lowered their friend down on a mat in front of Jesus. Imagine that scene. And so what did Jesus do? He saw their faith. Look at verse number 5 in Mark chapter 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, at first we might think, wait, what, Jesus, that's not what they're, they're trying to get him physically healed so he can walk. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned them within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Which is easier? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's nothing physical that you see with that. It's harder to say, rise up and walk because no one can do that. And you've got to prove it, or you've got to see it physically if you say that. Look at verse 10. Same thing he said in John chapter 9. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you will know that the light has come into the world, and I, the Son of God, has, have power over sin and its wreckage in this world that you live in, your current reality. I say to this paralytic, <coughs> excuse me, pick up your bed, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In verse 12, and so he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying we never saw anything like this. You see, Jesus understood that the presence of sin in this world was responsible for making that man blind and making this man paralyzed because it caused everything to be imperfect. It broke everything. Sin did. It messed everything up. And that's why we have pain and suffering. And he wanted them to see. He wanted to show them that he was the light of the world. And he had the power over the consequences of sin in this life and in our lives. And so he healed both those men. Paul helps us understand this in Romans chapter 5. Look at that. It's kind of an origin story to sin. If you like origin stories in the, uh, you know, the comic book, the superhero movies, this is an origin story to sin. Look at verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man, who's that one man? Adam, when Adam sinned in the garden, and death through sin. So when, when Adam sinned and the door was open, sin walked in, and who was right behind sin? Death was right behind sin. Sin and death walked in. Okay, when, when Adam sinned in the garden. And so death spread to all men because what? All sinned. So in other words, which he said in 3.23, all of us, you're going to sin eventually. We're not talking about our little children. But as you grow up and you understand right from wrong, you sin eventually. You do wrong, right? And so and he's saying when that happens, sin has just called, caused wreck and ruin in our lives, in this world. Sin is the fault, it is the cause of all the faults, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the pain, all the suffering, the ruined relationships, the messed up stuff that we see in this world that we have to live with. It's because of sin. That's, that's the reality of our current situation. And so no matter how much faith we have, no matter how much hope we have, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much good stuff we do, we can't keep bad things away from us. Now you can do right and live right and you should and we should fight against evil and wrong and we should, we should do good things and we should be lights in this world and salt of the earth. We should be all of that. 
But sin will continue to wreck and ruin lives and cause pain and suffering in this world. And, 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 and it should, what it should do is cause us to look to the one who has power over this. Here's the good news. Look at verse number 17. The good news is, Paul writes, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So in Christ, you have that hope. In Christ, you have salvation. In Christ, you are saved from the facts of this reality, even though for a time you have to live in this reality. And so he's saying that you have this hope in Christ, but you have to hold it up right next to the brutal facts of your current reality, the pain and suffering, because you still have to live in that, but you have hope in this life. You have hope that beyond this life there is something greater, that you have salvation beyond this life. Look at what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 16. The author writes, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so in Jesus, when you're in Christ, as Paul just talked about, when you're in Christ, you can approach the throne of God with confidence. Why with confidence? Because he wants you to. He says, come to me. And so now in Christ, you can approach the throne of God, the throne of grace. And what is it you can draw near to the throne of grace? And what do you receive when you draw near to God, the throne of grace? He said, come to me, draw near to me in confidence, and I'm going to give you grace and mercy when? In your time of need. When's your time of need? When you're going through the pain and the suffering that you're going through in your current reality. He says, draw near to me and I'm going to give you grace and I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to help you through in that time of need. I'm here for you. Draw near to me, not away from me. Realize that I have overcome the world. Remember Jesus, John wrote about the faith that is a victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Paul helps us continue. He helps us again in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 18 of Romans chapter 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So he didn't say, as some preach, that if your faith is strong enough, you'll never get sick, you'll never you know, have an upper respiratory infection, no one's going to die, you, you, won't, you won't have to have that surgery, that cancer's going to go away, that relationship will be healed, things won't break and fall apart. He, some preach that and they sell a bunch of tickets and books that way. But Paul says, the Bible says, that ain't true. He says, this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, you're going to suffer in this life. And that ain't fair because sin doesn't care about you. Satan doesn't care about you. And so he wants his sin and death to wreck and ruin and destroy your life, to take you out of your faith, of your relationship with Jesus. 
He doesn't care about you. And Paul said, look, you got it. You got it. You, you got to run the race. You can't, you can't get off the track. You've got to run the race. But, but what you will receive is, is not worth comparing. What you're going through is not worth comparing to what you will receive, the glory that will be revealed in us. That's that confidence that we have, that hope in Christ that we have. And so you can never lose hope that you will prevail in the end while you live in the current reality that you live with, with pain and suffering. Look at verse 22. Paul tells us even the whole creation deals with this. The whole creation groans waiting for that judgment day, that day of salvation. Look at verse 23. Paul says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We wait for that day for Jesus to come back. And so that, that, for that reason, we, we stay prepared for that day, living faithful to him, not giving up on our hope while we live in this world that has pain and suffering. But look at verse 24, and this is the good news. For in this hope, Paul writes, we were saved. You see, you were, you were saved in Christ, and this is your hope, that salvation, that eternal life, that heavenly home, that's your hope. And you don't give up on your hope. You don't throw in the towel. You don't quit the race. You hang in there and hold on to your faith while you go through the things that you have to go through. And so we do like Admiral Stockdale said. We never lose faith in the end of the story because the end of the story is that heavenly home with Christ, our Savior. The end of, that story, of the story is that eternal home with God, our Father, who created us, who sent His Son to save us. That's the end of the story. And we never give up hope that we will prevail in the end if we hold on to our faith while we live through the things we have to live through in this life that's our hope and that that gives us hope and encouragement and 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 joy and even peace while we have to go through some of the tough things the painful things that we have to go through in this world i don't know how anybody does it outside of christ i don't know how anybody does it away from a relationship with jesus Maybe you're ready to be restored in your faith this morning. Maybe you've, you've gotten weak, you've walked away, you've drifted, and you want prayers because you want to get strong. You don't want to lose that hope. That hope that you used to have you used to be on fire, and you, you let that fire go out, and now it's just barely any heat on your coals. Maybe you want to be restored and you ask for prayer. Maybe you're ready to have that kind of relationship with Jesus, and you want that hope, and you want to put on Christ in baptism. Let us know. Let us study with you. Let us help you this morning. If we can serve you, come forward as we stand and sing.